Welcome to the Real Python Podcast. This is episode 90. The Python community continually grows, with many users coming from different languages and backgrounds. This week on the show, we talk with developer Hugh Tipping about his Python journey. Hugh is also a member of the Real Python community. Hugh's background is in programming C and Perl, but started to use Python in a cybersecurity job. He explains the way he used Python to search for malware. Hugh also provides some suggestions for security packages and tools. Recently, Hugh has been working with Amazon Web Services, AWS, and using the Botto 3 library to automate services and manage authorizations with Python. We also discuss his affinity for test-driven development and the use of PyTest. CloudSmith is a secure software supply chain management tool for your Python packages and dependencies. Try CloudSmith for free at cloudsmith.com slash sign up. All right, let's get started. The Real Python Podcast is a weekly conversation about using Python in the real world. My name is Christopher Bailey, your host. Each week, we feature interviews with experts in the community and discussions about the topics, articles, and courses found at realpython.com. After the podcast, join us and learn real-world Python skills with a community of experts at realpython.com. Hey, Hugh. Thanks for coming on the show. Hey, thanks for having me on. So Dan Bader had brought up your name to me as a, a member of the Real Python community, and so I reached out and wanted to know if you would want to come on the show and talk a little bit about kind of your Python experience. And as we talked before this show, I was really intrigued by kind of your journey, not only in Python, but just kind of the different areas. And it was similar to to me in the sense that it's always kind of finding different ways to do programming and, and troubleshooting. And so I thought maybe we could start there, like, yeah, maybe start a little bit with kind of your background. We don't have to go all the way back, but we talked initially about you getting into Python and uh, what was the the first places where you started using it? Yeah, about a, a decade ago, prior job, I uh, started using Python uh, at a company that was very Perl-centric. Okay. Uh, there, there had been a lot of talk about moving things to Python for various reasons, so we can, we can talk about that as, as we go along. But I was in a cybersecurity role. I was doing a lot of investigations on uh, malware infections and other types of things. And so I, I wanted to do some tooling to help rid some of our Windows uh, PCs of, of malware by uh, remotely editing registries. And Python seemed the way to go because it, at the time, the cybersecurity community was using Python a lot. And my company did an internal class on on uh, Python. I said, yeah, let me give it a try. And once I once I discovered it, I really didn't feel like using Perl anymore. Perl, Perl was great for me for 12 years before that. How, how were you using it, Perl in those earlier jobs? Well, I, I was doing, a, I, I did a lot of uh, systems administration work uh, throughout my career. Okay. And much of it involved troubleshooting, looking through logs. And Perl was the best at doing a lot of parsing and reporting. I mean, Perl stands for practical extraction reporting language. So regexes, and uh, reporting templates and things like that were built right into it. You could throw a regex in the middle of a, of a Perl statement and have it just parse data. It was really easy. So it helped a lot with, with troubleshooting over the years and building out 
usage reports and, and other things and just just scanning uh, scanning really huge logs <laughs> yeah so you mentioned the company that you were working with introduced you to python what was uh was it like a, a class or like a seminar or what, how did they do that yeah they brought in an instructor to, to teach the class okay and i was in the class with a lot of uh, some of their senior developers, I felt a, l- a little intimidated. Um, even though I had come to college for programming, I didn't do a lot as a, as a full app dev. And so this it was a little strange being in the class uh, with all these really incredible application developers. But I, I did well in it. The teacher was good. And, and Python Python's ease of learning really lended itself to me being able to pick, pick it up and just use it right away. So I, felt, I just fell in love with it in a few days. Had you been using any other languages before Perl? Yeah, I had done a bit of C. Okay. C was a lot of my, my bread and butter uh, during college when I was uh, going for a, a computer science major. And so I had done a lot of, a lot of C just with, with a lot of open source stuff that had to be modified. And back in the early days of open source, things didn't always come with, you, know, you just do a make install or a make build and it just worked. I had to do a lot of modifications of things. Hmm. So I was definitely putting a lot of my C to use there. Do you see sometimes now also, uh, like no. the, the kind of way you can have extensions? No. Yeah, no, I haven't. I haven't used C in a very, very long time. Um, I, I have thought about getting back into it, so so I could do uh, extensions or libraries, but it's it's never really uh, come up. There's just such a wonderful world of modules out there. I, I've I'm just grateful for all the people who put in the time to to make these tools that make my life easier. So I, I haven't felt the need uh, to date. Yeah, that makes sense. Can you explain kind of some of the, like you mentioned the cybersecurity job and you mentioned how it was looking at Windows machines. Were you working for doing work that was for internal stuff inside of a, a particular organization or was it for uh, other businesses? Yeah, no, we did it. Uh, so the work that I did was sort of cross-company we would we would get we would get alerts for evidence of, of malware. We would have to frequently either update AV or if the AV wasn't wasn't uh, handling that particular malware. If we had some idea what the malware did, we would have to go in and make some uh, manual changes. When when uh, there were particular types of malware at the time that would uh, not only inject itself but it would also do some funky stuff with the Windows registry to make sure that it stayed around and make sure that it executed upon reboot. So <laughs> get its hooks in there. <laughs> it, it, indeed, indeed. So one of my one of my first Python scripts, even even though I'm mostly a Linux Unix person throughout my career, my, one of my first Python scripts was a uh, Win32 script that actually remotely connected to a Windows registry. It found the particular chunk of badness that the that the malware had inserted into the registry and it would remove it and then um, if we knew specifically which which files were infected or what kind of junk it, it dropped in the file system yeah. we would also put uh, markers in the registry to uh, mark those files for deletion upon reboot okay so the python script would take care of that in the registry it would also actually keep a copy of that that chunk that that hive from the registry in case we screwed up any of the other software on the on the machine and so we could uh, uh, restore it and that was that was very very helpful because we could call up an individual and say hey 
I need you to log out. I'm going to run this script and then I need you to reboot. And then the malware was gone. So uh, that was, it was fun. So almost all in remote, it sounds like. Yeah, it was remote. Yeah, because we had to deal with people in remote offices. And, and uh, I was, I was uh, fortunately grant, granted administrator, remote administrator privileges so that I could run the script. Nice. Uh, with my own credentials and be able to do it. So yeah, it was, it was pretty cool. It was, uh, I, was, I was kind of proud of myself. Was your Perl background helpful in the sense that you, I think about this idea of like going through the registry and looking for uh, specific elements and, and maybe regular expressions or something like that would become in handy there or your Perl background would come in handy as you apply it to Python. Yeah, I mean, I, I learned and got pretty good at regular expressions mostly through all of my my Perl work. So when I had to use uh, the Python RE module, my challenge was only just figuring out how to do how to use the REs in yeah. uh, in Python, <laughs> not actually <laughs> build build the regular expression. So yeah, all the Perl experience definitely helped, and that's why you know uh, when you when you're looking at regular expression engines, they're they're frequently labeled as as PCRE Perl compatible regular expressions. So oh, okay, uh, that's that's where that term comes. I don't I don't know if that term is used all that much these days, but uh, for for quite some time it was. Yeah, I don't see it as much, but uh, that makes sense to me that that you, you definitely want to standardize <laughs> at least the the majority of it. Otherwise, it starts to become kind of a, a a moving target. Yeah, there's like this kind of thing with Markdown that's kind of similar that way, where like there is this sort of base standard of what Markdown is, and then there's like all these interesting offshoots <laughs> of like, well, this is what we would do in science and this is what we would do over here. And then it starts to become a little kind of crazier. Yeah, exactly. You've, you've got different flavors of it, you know, flavor for, for Git and Atlassian flavor for it. Yeah. And so it gets a, it gets a little off the beaten track, but as long I think as long as you have the base, you're good. You know, like even in, when I was helping out a Java developer uh, with some regular expressions, I know that there were some differences there. Because that developer happened to know that I was good at the REs and just asked me for a little help on something. So yeah, cool. Yeah, that was that was a challenge too. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think are are reasons that people? I mean, you mentioned a couple already, but what are some reasons that you think people use Python for cybersecurity? Definitely the ease of learning. Okay, a lot of cybersecurity experts, and I've known some really good cybersecurity experts. They're not necessarily developers. Yeah. And, and they want to they want to do some automation. They want to get up to speed fast on things. And in addition, there's there's a lot of built-in stuff. There's a lot of great modules, a, a lot of pre-canned stuff that they need to just just import and run. You know, like if they wanted to do uh, checking, you know, doing any kind of network packet sniffing or scanning or checking signatures of files or whatever, they could just do that really, really quickly and easily with Python. And plus, you know, Python's got great, great debugging. Of course, it's 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 another open source language. Open source uh, is you know, security people like open source. They don't like closed source. It makes them nervous because it's hard to check. You know, if there's vulnerabilities. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, interesting. Can you name any particular tools? I'm I'm sure that that it's a moving landscape. But like, if somebody was interested in. Uh, just kind of experimenting in that realm of like, okay, well, what are these things and you know, how can they work just to kind of, I don't know. That's my whole thing is like, I, I like to dabble in, in some of these other practices just to kind of see what's out there and, and educate myself on it. Do you have any suggestions? Yeah, I, I think, I think if you want to be 
especially if you want to deal with intrusion yeah. detection. And if, if you want to do some tooling uh, around that area with Python, I mean, there's really good intrusion detection tools, but if you were doing something something like that on your own, definitely get get to understand, you know, being able to save PCAP files, being able to, to listen on a network port and save PCAP stuff that can be analyzed later, or just learn how in Python to, to analyze it, look for a specific behavior signatures, source IP addresses that you might need to block, et cetera. Okay. You mentioned the term PCAP. I'm sorry, I'm not that familiar with that. Yeah, PCAP is, is a format for uh, for storing uh, network packets. Okay, there's a there's a there's a couple of formats, but PCAP PCAP is the one that I know. You know, cool. yeah, generally that's how I, I I save network captures. Yeah, how long were you dabbling in that world? Or I mean, you were working in it, not dabbling. Yeah, sorry. No, I worked in. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, it, it, dabbling it depends upon your point of view, but uh, I was definitely doing a lot of lot of different things in cybersecurity. I did it for about three years for that particular company. I haven't done much of it in in recent years. It's certainly that time seeing all the the all the just yuckiness out there on the internet and the threats that were out there. It was uh, it's made me a lot more security conscious in anything that I do thereafter. Yeah. Yeah. I would think that, <laughs> I don't know. I, this is not a, a perfect analogy, but as a, as a person who's delved into filmmaking, uh, and, you know, digital video and, and, you know, I've been an audio engineer for a long time. Uh, I'll watch movies or listen to music in, in a different kind of way than like the, the general person, you know, like kind of audience just enjoying something. I'll be like, ah, oh, man, what is the editor doing, <laughs> you know, or, or something, you know, like uh, very often you want the experience of something artistic like that right. for the, all the hands that were on it, not to have left all these fingerprints everywhere. <laughs> right. If right. that makes sense. And I, I wonder about that with like something like cybersecurity now that y- you've been sort of uh, awoken to <laughs> what's possible. Yeah. Well, it, it definitely, it, you know, makes me a lot more paranoid. Uh, and it also makes me good friends with uh, security personnel at various companies I've worked at because security people, the security people tend to have a hard time. Uh, they they tend to uh, be considered the ones that that slow down uh, work when they're really just trying to keep a company safe. And when we've seen all the data breaches in recent years, you you know that you really have to take it ser- seriously. Right. What's happening today is is really kind of crazy. You know, we're like. Large nation states are are very very involved in this kind of thing, which is yeah. nuts. Yeah, yeah. And and if you and if you're being attacked by a nation state, I I wouldn't suggest writing a Python script to check it out. I would probably go for something a little bit more commercial. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but it 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 also you know whether you're working in Python or anything else, it's it, it's important to keep security really at, at, at the you know at the head of of your list of things. You need to be performant. For sure, and you need to have your features, but security has to be has to be in there. I mean, I I, I don't write a lot of scripts to that deal with a lot of sensitive things. You know, I'm not running a you know a hospital system or, or stuff like that. You know, I but I do still run my code through things like Bandit and Safety and and Docker images through Anchor to make sure that there's there's no vulnerabilities in there that that I couldn't necessarily uh, find myself. Now Bandit Bandit is a, is a tool that looks for specific 
coding practices that you use that may be insecure. And um, safety is another module that looks at all of your dependencies that you're that you're using and sees if there's any kind of notices about them, or it'll actually even warn you if the particular module hasn't been contributed to in six months to a year, it might be getting a little crusty. So it'll also warn you about that. And then Anchor is for for Docker images. Uh, it'll scan it and just look inside and make sure everything's looking all right. So I do these things, you know, just because I want to show that I, at least I'm trying to to do my part. Yeah, no, I definitely agree with that whole uh, litany of stuff because we had a, a previous sponsor, uh, Sneak, Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. Recently, and they they make kind of nice tools in in a similar way. And I was talking to data science people that when they're getting that point of like sharing it or, or doing some kind of cloud, you know, deployment of something, it's like, well, maybe you should run it through this sort of stuff and and make sure that you're not missing gaping security things that you're not aware of. Because um, you know, it's hard for a, a tutorial to. Not only are they a snapshot in time, but security is is a whole other topic you know and a whole other rabbit hole to kind of dive into yeah um that almost kind of needs to be done on its own but if if you're teaching someone to go and deploy you know a django application there's this whole other subset of things that you need to think about uh, if you're gonna you know leave it up there running and and not just use it as like a portfolio piece that you're just kind of like turning off and on yeah exactly exactly i mean you have to it is its own world it is its own layer. In fact, with security, it's multiple layers. You know, using your own tools yeah. against your own code is, is is a good start. And that can take care of a lot of stuff. But putting other layers upon it, uh, you know, more advanced scanners or third-party tools definitely will help that as well. I mean, that's whole, the whole part of, of the, the concept of defense in depth. There's so many layers, you know, that if something gets past your firewall, it can't get past your encryption. If it gets past that, it can't get past other. So you want to make sure that if any, any layer gets breached, that the other layers are prepared to, to handle wow, yeah. um, any problems. So defense in depth is, is just so important. Security within software supply chains has become the major focus for developer and engineering teams. CloudSmith is a software supply chain management tool that provides public and private Python repository hosting for ultra-fast and secure delivery of your Python packages. CloudSmith is a fully compatible PyPI-like repository. With CloudSmith, you have the ability to develop your Python packages internally and privately share them with other teams across your organization. To get started with your own private Python repository, visit cloudsmith.com slash sign up for more information. Lately, we were talking about this before, you've been working a lot more with uh, Amazon Web Services mm-hmm. and um, and automating them. We talked a little bit about, I guess it's Bado. I always wanted to call it Bodo. I don't know why, but it makes sense that it's Bado as like Roboto <laughs> to automate things. And I had this misconception based on, again, just kind of looking at tutorials and and kind of getting introduced to to the Python libraries that are out there, that it mainly, that Bado was designed to do stuff with just S3 and buckets and things like that. And then you woke, woke me up pretty quickly. So um, maybe give me a, a little background on, on how you got into using it. And maybe we could talk a little bit about the different uses that you can you can use that library for. Yeah, sure. No, So Bado is, uh, 
thought it was a great library. There's a guy named uh, Mitch Garnot uh, wrote the original one. Uh, I believe he wrote the original one. I, I think he wrote also Botto 3, which was the successor to Botto. I'm not sure if he wrote the original, but he definitely wrote Botto 3. And then he uh, eventually was working in, he was working at, uh, in AWS and, and Botto 3 became part of the, it's part of the AWS uh, S, SDK. Yeah. So it, you know, Python became my friend and I, I used it for, for everything. And when I started becoming, you know, doing more work in the cloud, doing, doing a lot of cloud engineering, you know, Python naturally came along with me. Uh, and one of the first things I looked up is, well, how can I use Python? And then when I found the, the bottle library, I said, great, so what can I do with it? And I did, I've done, you know, everything from, from generating, you know, security reports or lists of credentials or expired certs to being able to auto-generate SSO credentials locally for users. SSO is a fairly recent addition to AWS and you can create temporary credentials across multiple accounts in this, you know, I wrote a script that does it automatically for you. I wrote another script that bridged between two different kinds of systems, between an, an on-prem and a cloud system, where on one side I had to talk to Kinesis in AWS, the other side I had to talk to talk to Kafka in a build system. So I built a Python script that talked to AWS on one side, on-prem on the other, did a little munging and serialization and encryption of data and so it acted as the go-between for me, and, and, and Bada was really the way to, to go for accessing the, all the AWS stuff. So it just, uh, Bada allows me to write these little convenience tools, a lot of which can be done with the AWS command line and, you know, piping output to, to things like JQ. I just, you know, with Python, you just get so much more, more power to, to manipulate the data and be able to store it. Or uh, actually, one of my latest things is to, pull usage data from the cloud and then throw it into a, a Google spreadsheet. Okay. And, you know, so I'm using Bottle 3 on one side, I'm using the Google uh, modules on the other. And so it just, it's it's a great, it's a great, Bottle is just a great bridge. Let's me keep Python in the middle. And I've been using it for years. It's, it's just fantastic. Yeah, cool. So an SSO is that's uh, their secure sign-on? Yeah, it's a, it's a single sign-on. What you do is you, yeah, what you do is you uh, sign on with a single set of credentials, and then you have access to cross multiple accounts within a particular organization. Okay. And you have different levels of access to those different accounts. So it looks like a lot of the tools that you're creating there are a bit like managing access and, or at least monitoring access and, and setting up you know, credentials and, and making sure, you know, things are configured how, how you want, which is really cool that it can do that. Uh, the tutorials that I was seeing were all kind of geared to this idea of like, let's use AWS, the, the S3 storage buckets to like save stuff in, to throw things in and, you know, create them or, or remove them. But it even goes further than that, right? It goes into like, like standing up EC2 instances, the Elastic Compute, or you mentioned a couple things off as you went along there, like uh, Kafka. Yeah, Kafka. Kafka is is a is a streaming service. Okay, and it uh, it allows you to just sort of push push data through and you know through various channels, and so it's it's a way to uh, to stream large larger amounts of data. So Kafka, and then there's there's um, which AWS has a managed service for. They've got their own version of streaming called Kinesis which adds a lot of other kinds of tools on it. 
So the bottle library lets you connect to lots of different services you can use, can connect to. I mean, S3 is is, is great. SQS, which is like a, a queuing when you're sending messages, you know, think of like RabbitMQ or, or, or MQ series. It's a great, that's a, which is actually a great way for, for uh, building microservices. Yeah. So they can communicate with each other. So yeah, it's, it's, uh, you know, most, uh, most, Things in AWS you can communicate to via Python. So far, I haven't found anything yet that I haven't been able to. (laughs) It's all talking. But I'm sure I will run into something. (laughs) I'm sure tomorrow I'll find out, oh oh darn, that the library doesn't have this. Yeah, and one of the changes with Auto 3 would be it being more geared around Python 3 uh, versus the original. It looked like, like if you just type in Botto, it Actually, I, I believe I believe that was it. Yeah, I don't I don't remember the full history of it. Okay, but I, yeah, I think that might uh, that might have been there. I'd have to I'd have to. Look yeah, because I was looking at some of the stuff about like if I just typed in Bado, it it was like Python two six something and then two seven three or what have you. Which I, I was like, oh okay, cool. They, you know, it's nice that they're both available <laughs> if you're you know in that kind of code base and and, and need it. Um, yeah, and actually, as you were as you were speaking, I just uh, pulled up some of the history of it, and uh, Bado three was also refactored to use sort of a, this base library called uh, Bado core, which had a lot of the low level interface stuff, and then Bado three sort of sits on top of it, and abstracts a lot of it, as as one of these articles is telling me. So yeah, cool. One of the things that we were discussing before we got started was uh, you were also getting pretty deep into testing and are a big proponent of test-driven development. Yeah. What's your background with that? Oh, yeah. Well, when I wanted to get a little bit more advanced with Python, I, I took I took an online class through, through O'Reilly. They had a, this, this Python sequence uh, of classes that I did uh, sort of asynchronously uh, with Python instructors. Okay, and they um, they were a big believer in, in test driven development. So it was Python three, and uh, for each one of the exercises, I wrote tests before I actually completed the exercise, and that that kind of got me that got me started. And I found because I I like the idea of doing unit tests for code. The idea of running tests before you wrote your code was was kind of wacky to me until I started doing it. Okay. And I realized that writing your tests out first was, it was a great way to help design things. Hmm. And I, I found out as I, as I wrote tests first that I would frequently look at, look at how things were sort of talking to each other and I realized, wait a minute, I'm doing that wrong. Uh, let, me, let me do a little redesign. And rather than having to refactor code, what I did is I actually just changed some tests to to fit the design, and then I could actually finally sit down and write my code. A lot of people don't like to do that; they like to get their hands dirty with the code directly, and that's great for for things like a, a proof of concept. But when you're doing a lot of uh, adding features to an existing system, I found that adding a test first, a, a te- what you do is you add a test that fails, and then you write code to make the failing test pass that's that's one of the precepts of tdd huh i was thinking about like the idea of it being much more applicable or important is with this existing code base as opposed to say a one-off experiment kind of uh, situation like in in an organization adding the testing to your code and, and following what you're saying exactly is like 
this is what should happen. This is what should be the results. I'm going to test for that. And it fails now because I haven't written it <laughs> um, or I haven't completed it. And then as I completed it, you know, like I, I can not only, you know, show to the rest of the organization and the people around me that, you know, this is, uh, you know, the process that it, it's going to go through. It's interesting to think about, like, I, I haven't thought about it that way, that mm. being within a, a group or an organization, how, how much more important that is. It, it really is because I, I was working on a group project and, and I was actually mentoring two more junior people who wanted to really learn Python. So what I, what I did is I actually had them just do, do some basic online learning on their own. And then I sat down with them and helped them build out a Python project. And I, I started with them on, on test-driven development, which the company at the time was, was talking about doing to help improve code quality and, and re- reduce a lot of customer pain that we were seeing from bugs that got out. And they, you know, they saw it firsthand how they could really envision the application a lot better with the, te- with the tests there. And in fact, at a certain point, when we were starting to write code, when we were starting to write code for the test, we were looking at some of the tests and we said, wait a minute. These tests are testing for the wrong thing. Uh, this is not the results that we want. We went back and looked at the spec of the project and said, uh-uh, no, this is not what we wanted. And it's, it's a good thing we didn't go the rabbit hole, go down the rabbit hole of writing out the code for something we were doing wrong. Wow, yeah. That, that's something that worked for me. It worked for that project. You know, I, I'm a big advocate of TDD. I, I don't necessarily, you know, wouldn't want to force it on people who are really good coders and they write quality code and they can sort of visualize it in their head. Right. Uh, that's great. Uh, for me, that experience with them really sort of hit it home for me and for them. Plus the fact that when I made changes to existing features, things that were already coded up, right, and I ran my unit tests, I could find other places in the code base, other things that, that the thing that I changed depended on that broke. Yeah. Because I didn't think. Oh, I changed the format of this. I didn't realize this other part of the code. I had forgotten that it required a particular format of the data. So I had to go over there and change that that piece as well. Without the the unit tests, I wouldn't have known that. I would have. I would have. Uh, there would have been could potentially have been some buggy code out there. Unit tests, yes. Test driven development depends upon what you like to do. I I've just found it so often to just help find design flaws uh, from the beginning. Yeah, that makes sense. I yeah. have two things there I'm kind of intrigued by. Yeah. One is just that it, the testing becomes this sort of central, it's becomes part of the conversation of, you know, what we're trying to do and how we're going to develop this and, and becomes this like, really great measure of like, are we meeting the spec <laughs> of, of what this thing's going to do? And, and that yeah. can be, you know, shown and proven to all the parties there. And then the other is that I had Ricky white on recently. He's a guy who writes a lot of the interviews yeah. for real Python. And we were talking about a recent project that he created and it was sort of a portfolio piece, this uh, content aggregating tool. And he had added tests to it. And he said that, I really think that you should have tests even in your own smaller personal projects if it's going to be something that's going to be like a portfolio piece that you're going to share with other people because when you show that to an organization that you as an individual on your own individual projects have added tests, it kind of is this interesting like additional 
like light bulb <laughs> that turns on or star or whatever that says, okay, this, this person gets, you know, the, the, the importance of them and, uh, the basic uses of them. And they don't even have to be complex, but just the idea that you're familiar with them. It, has that been an experience y- yourself? If you were going to bring somebody on a team, if they had tests? Yeah, for sure. For sure. Uh, hearing people talk about testing, even, even if some of the underlying philosophies, uh, on, you know, whether to write test first or test later, the idea of wanting to do testing and wanting to verify your code and verify changes in your code. Ha- having at least that base mentality is for, for people that I've interviewed, it's been, it's been a big plus because it shows that they want to put out quality work. Yeah. And it's, and it's certainly helped me when I've had to do coding projects for jobs that I wanted to get. You know, I, I, I kind of clinched it at one job because not only did I, did I have, not only did the Python do what it was supposed to do, but I had unit tests for almost everything. And then I dockerized it and wrote a make file. I was a little bit of an overachiever <laughs> with that particular uh, interview project. Yeah, that's cool. But it's, it's, I mean, you know, you, you, you want to show the care that you put into your work. Right. And then you can argue philosophy later. Yeah. I was, yeah, I think I mentioned a couple of times on the show, but that was like part of my interview process was I, I was creating projects uh, that were kind of iPad driven. And the idea that I could pull that out of my backpack and, and show the application running in front of that person and they could touch it and, and, you know, do some of the basic stuff inside of it was really helpful. So I, I always like that idea of like projects that don't necessarily have to be you know, like somebody could run them, <laughs> you know, on their machine and, and so forth, which is really yeah, kind of, kind of unique thing. That's why I, I like games too, like in the sense that even though the people may not be into video games per se, but like structurally and, and, you know, getting it to a point where it actually completely runs and can show off stuff is, uh, is kind of a statement to like, you know, completion of your entire work there. Yeah. Showing, showing a fully finished product, you know, is, is, it's a big deal for for a lot of companies. They want to know that you can finish something. They, you know, they want to know that you have the skills, but can you use those skills to bring something to a conclusion and and get it out to market? Yeah. This week, I want to shine a spotlight on another real Python video course. It covers a topic we've touched on several times recently. Let's say you've created a project, maybe for your own portfolio, but now you need to share it with the greater world. The course is titled. Host your Django project on Heroku. It's based on an article by Bartosz Zyczynski. And in the course, Bartosz himself takes you through how to sign up for a free Heroku account, use the Heroku CLI command line interface, bootstrap a minimal Django project, integrate Git with Heroku, then connect to Heroku's PostgreSQL database, manage configuration, make new releases, and rollbacks. I think learning how to host your projects on a cloud service is a great investment of your time. You spend all that time creating a project, and now you can share it with others. And like most of the video courses on RealPython, the course is broken into easily consumable sections. And for this course, you get a downloadable cheat sheet with commands for not only Heroku and Django, but also some basics for using Vim to edit files in the terminal. And all RealPython courses have a transcript, including closed captions. Check out the video course. You can find a link in the show notes, or you can find it using the enhanced search tool on realpython.com. I wanted to kind of talk a little bit about how you got involved with RealPython. Like, how did you find RealPython initially? 
Well, in my early days of Python, I did a lot of online research on how to do things. You know, even though I had read a lot of, I read a, a, a learning Python, I had taken a class, there was, there was still so much I wanted to learn. So you know, real Python was uh, one of several sites that I had been using as a reference. And at the same time, separately, I had seen a lot of stuff from uh, Dan Bader before he was even involved with real Python. So the two of them uh, sort of separately were, were, you know, part of, part of my go-to resources. Yeah. Yeah. And then when Dan took over real Python, I was super excited because I knew the quality of work that, that Dan had. And I, I was, I loved his uh, YouTube channel. I loved all of his posts. I loved his mailing list and to see him take over real Python. That, that to me sounded like a really good evolution. And, and it's evolved into it's something that's really incredibly slick. It's a go-to for me. And when somebody asks me, hey, how do you so do blah, blah, and Python? I say, go to real Python. It's probably there. <laughs> yeah. In a lot of cases, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, not, not everything, but there's, I mean, uh, certainly a lot of the fundamentals, a lot of the stuff that's, that's important these days. There's a lot of stuff on pandas and async. You know, I've seen some new stuff now. You guys are working on bringing out stuff up for fast API, which is, so the latest slide spreads. So, you, so you're keeping up with what's with, with what's going on, uh, and that's important. You break it down really good, yeah, uh, as well. It's, uh, it it helped me a lot. I, I learned about Py and V from from Real Python, and I was able to take what I learned from there and sort of package it into a little recipe for some of the Python devs at a previous job, and made it easy for them to have uh, multiple environments to be able to test their coding. What kind of uh, I have dabbled with a few of the other environment tools, if you will. What were the things that you liked about PyENV? Uh, what, what I liked about it is that I could on demand get a very specific version of Python to work with. Okay. And it, it also controlled, the, you could control the virtual environments um, as well. I used a, a combination of PyENV and poetry. Okay. Poetry I used for all the, the dependency management. Um, I had used Pippi and V for a while, but uh, Poetry, I, I liked it uh, a little bit better because uh, it was good at installing dependencies, but it was also good, also good at the time at, at uninstalling unneeded dependencies. And it also did a lot with the virtual environment. And it just, I just I thought of the, you know, the whole idea of the, the Pi Project uh, TOML file was a great way to just to, to define the whole project. So there are great things about that. But Pi ENV gave me the base Python to work with before um, I installed Poetry. Yeah, nice. And so it made it really simple. Yeah. Those are all tools that I'm hoping we're going to do more video course stuff on uh, to kind of dive a little deeper into, especially uh, the Poetry, which I, I'm I'm intrigued by. Because uh, there were some other previous tools that that seemed to be, uh, I don't know, kind of flagging as far as their own support. And, and like you talked about, like, how often are people updating them? And this one seems to be pretty strong. Yeah, poetry seems to be pretty pretty good. And, uh, you know, so far I, I've really um, enjoyed it. I mean, there is, you know, I, I have been reading lately about, you know, people have been complaining that there's just so many tools out there for Right. Managing dependencies and managing your virtual environment. And, and and I can see that. I can see how people get frustrated because they're not sure really what to pick. And and I, I'm hoping over time that a lot of it uh, a lot of this converges. I just I but you have to be willing to give up tools you're familiar with. You know, Pippi and V was some, something I was really uh, familiar with and I was happy to move to poetry. I mean Perl I did for twelve years right. before I I went on to Python. I've been doing Python 
on and off for the, the last decade or so. So you have to be really willing to to move on and try new things and see what works best for your particular situation. Yeah, that's been a theme that we've talked about also, just the idea that by yeah. using other tools and le- using especially other languages, you start to appreciate you know, what, what's in this language and, and how it can work, but also, you know, like there's just completely different ways of thinking about how to solve problems. And when it comes down to it, that's really, you mentioned that about the cybersecurity thing. Yeah. Here's a, you know, here's a group of people that are basically tasked with solving these problems. And when it comes down to the tools, they're not going to be religious about any of them because the situations are in flux, <laughs> you know, and they need to be able to, to find what's going to work and, and, you know, get it done as, uh, expediently as possible, which I, I think is kind of an interesting thing. And that's one of the things I like about Python too, is that it, it, it allows you to create, uh, solutions pretty rapidly, um, and, mm-hmm. and kind of be able to think on your feet and the yeah. syntax of the language doesn't always get in the way of it, which is nice. No, it certainly doesn't. The the syntax is is uh, certainly far more restrictive than uh, I had experienced when I was doing Perl, and I I did like the fact that there was a lot less punctuation. <laughs> it, was, it was it was weird. No, seriously, Python has has uh, uh, has this you know does things with indentation. That was a weird thing for me to get used to. I said, what? How? Where are the curly brackets? Right. How do you know when things start and end? You indent. That, that doesn't seem right. <laughs> it took some time for me to yeah. wrap my head around it, and it worked. And just it just looks a lot. It looks a lot cleaner, you know. And you know, as opposed to uh, like there was a book that came out about Perl a couple of years ago uh, called Idiomatic Perl, which tried to create this sort of one way of doing things because Perl was 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 really wonderfully flexible, but in, in certain cases it was it was too much so. But I I liked uh, I liked that Python was just just a lot, a lot cleaner. Yeah, totally. Have you been using the other community portions of RealPython? Things like the Slack um, channels and stuff? Yeah, yeah. So uh, there is the, you know, I spent some time on, on Pythonista Cafe. Not so much these days. I spent a lot of time on, on the Slack for a bit. Uh, you know, it's, I, I like, it, it, it's nice not to feel in a bubble yeah. when, I, when I'm working on stuff in Python and to see the other kinds of things that, that people do. You know, it's, it's, it's one thing, it's one thing to read tutorials, you know, and learn about object-oriented programming with cats and dogs and cars. <laughs> it's another thing. Right. It's another thing to solve real problems. And I'm seeing people's real problems within the Slack channel. I'm seeing, I'm seeing such a variety of ways that Python can be used. Uh, it's just, it's just sort of a wonderful gene pool of information from which to, to gain experience. And I've learned things. I've spent some time. I spent some time with a, a few people on the Slack just. Helping them with uh, with some uh, Bato stuff because uh, they didn't necessarily have the strongest AWS experience, but they were tasked with doing something in it, and so I helped help them give some of my experience to them. And then just some of the wonderful advanced thing I see people things I see people doing uh, with with what Python can do with object orientation is is kind of open up my eyes. So there's just so much out there. And and to see people's projects yeah. and, and to see their successes with it, it's it's very inspiring to see it. And you know, you always see Dan in there commenting and talking to people and and uh yeah, and there's just and he has such a wonderful group of people that he's gathered as people who just go along and just just help. 
It's just like yeah. <laughs> like our Python guardian angels <laughs> looking over us. Yeah, it's a good set of uh, authors and and um, you know other members of the team that that spend quite a bit of time in there and, and go through and check kind of what's going on. And, and I think a lot of it is similar to what you were saying of just this idea of like, especially with the remote work thing very often yeah. as a developer alone, you, you feel in a bubble <laughs> by yourself often also, but you just do. as a programmer too, like there's like, you know, these sort of conversations that you are having, you know, because you're not in person or what have you, or maybe if Python is new for you to have a community, just to kind of go hang and just, I lurk through that stuff more than anything, <laughs> just kind of like, mm-hmm. and I find it that inspiring too. like a, the Friday thing that uh, Dan always likes to do. Like, okay, what do people do this week? Um, I, I always enjoy kind of you know, scrolling through that and see what, you know, people's wins were and, and it, uh, it is encouraging. Yeah, very much so. Very much so. It's 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 encouraging. And and one other thing I wanted to mention was that I feel like I feel like the the real Python community is 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 kind of it's like a safe space. Yeah. Uh, because when you when you put questions out on various types of forums out there, you don't necessarily know the kind of reaction you're going to get from people. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. I hope, so. hopefully that was a diplomatic way. <laughs> no, no, it was <laughs> very <that>. diplomatic. <laughs> yeah, yeah. In the real Python community, you could you could ask the, the you know the biggest newbie question, and someone's going to come in and answer it, and they're going to answer it without attitude and why don't you know that already or right um, stuff like that. And you know, and and I know a lot of people who are part of it. Um, you know, there's always there's some language barriers. Everybody's been very patient because you've got you've got global you have a global community there of people. Oh yeah. Uh, so it's it's nice to just sort of drop in there and, and know you're going to be uh, among some cool, smart people, and you don't have to feel like you need to walk on eggshells around anybody when you when you need help. Yeah, cool. It's a nice feeling. Yeah. All right. Well, I have these regular questions that I, I like to ask everybody, and the first one is, what are you excited about in the world of Python? Again, that could be like an event, a book, package, editor, what have you. Oh gosh. Well, I I, I like the way Python 3 has been evolving, yeah. just all the new features that have been coming out that I just, I just can't keep up with, <laughs> uh, which in a way is, which in a way is great because there's just so many, so many wonderful things that come out. Just the, the type hinting has been very helpful to me. And I'm, I'm looking at just, I haven't even looked at what Python 310 has yet. I'm excited about that. I know you, you guys just did a write up on that. So I want to, I want to take a look at that as well. And it's funny. All the new things that whenever something new comes out in Python, uh, real Python uh, breaks it down uh, quite nicely. But it's just all these new features, all these fun little toys to play with is, is definitely been been very exciting. Just the way the language itself has been evolving. Yeah. So, and particular package, um, I, I recently discovered something called uh, Bolton, Boltons. Uh, there are these extra packages with things like uh, different types of ordered dictionaries and types of caching. Just a whole bunch of like kind of random stuff that maybe people thought should have been part of the standard library but wasn't. And and I read a whole ton of stuff about the stuff that's um, everything that's in there. And it's just kind of neat things like, oh, yeah, why didn't somebody think of that before? So, <laughs> you know, just throwing a decorator on to 
a function and, and now now you've got a, an LRU cache. Oh, boom, done. Yeah. <laughs> so and now as far as what I want to what I want to learn next with Python. I mean, everything these days is data science, machine learning, etc. I, I don't expect to be a data science scientist, but I would love to learn a little bit more about analytics. You know, there's a and just just dealing with with numbers. I have to deal when you're dealing with the cloud. You have to be very careful about resource usage and costs and trends and things like that. And there's some yeah. there's some tooling out there, but I'd like to be able to kind of write write my own stuff for the, for the particular needs of my company and, and understand, well, what's important to them? What's important to the business? What kind of analytics should I, should I generate? I don't really know how to do that. Uh, there's, there's, there's so much stuff out there and just, just the basics of things like, just like getting, just using pandas, for instance, just to organize the data in a certain way. Uh, I'd love to be able to, to do stuff uh, like that. And along with that, this is sort of not, not, having to do with Python directly, but I'd, I'd love to get a little bit better at uh, using databases. I've used SQL Alchemy and NORMs a bit uh, with, with Python. In fact, my next big project is going to be a much larger tool and it's going to involve some database work. So I, I really want to get into that a little bit more. It's, it's, it's been a weakness of mine for some time. Yeah, I just saw an interview coming up for TalkPython that's with people from SQL Alchemy and I guess SQL Alchemy two is coming or is out. Oh, great. Which, so anyway, so some changes there might be interesting. Also. Yeah. And then uh, to talk about the type hinting, I had this really great conversation um, and it should come out just before this episode with Luciano. He uh, talked about mm-hmm. type hinting and the idea that it's sort of this gradual type hinting that's being added to Python kind of across it, keeping that it's dynamic. And anyway, we, we kind of got into this last area and, you know, there's this balancing act of what types can do for you and type hinting can do for you as a business owner that is sort of conversely balanced with testing. Type hinting can't basically, you know, check for rules <laughs> about your business. Like, you know, uh, it can't, yeah. you know, say that, oh, the it needs to be a three-letter string because it's supposed to be an airport code. It, you know, it can just say that it's a string or not a string. And so testing is something that would take you to that next point. And so it's an interesting sort of balancing act. So it was a great conversation, but I think that that's something that is interesting that, you know, as much as the proposals are to add more and more type checking and and hinting and, and have those features that allow for kind of really powerful things like you mentioned fast API and and Pydantic and Mm -hmm. kind of this interesting avenues of like, you know, what kind of data is coming in and going out and stuff like that. Testing is still going to be, you know, a, a component. <laughs> so Yeah, it's it's going to have to be as, as uh, the industry moves faster, as businesses are competing uh, much more, especially when you, when you have, you know, issues where in the economy, your, your businesses are going to be really competing with each other for, for what, for what uh, bandwidth they can, they can get, yeah. making sure that your stuff works. Is important, you know. You you can you're 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 one bug away from losing half your customers. <laughs> so, yeah, we hear about those all the time. <laughs> yeah, you really you really don't want that. Uh, you know, you start off with type hinting, and then you have 
you know, Pydantic is so something I've also been learning as well. So it's just again like the security is different layers yeah. of making sure that your your code works. There's unit testing, integration testing, system testing. Got to you got to check all of that. But these are, I mean, these are these are philosophies that are part of my day to day. I certainly and one thing I want to emphasize. I mean, I've talked about a lot of things that you know on this. Yeah. On this episode, I don't. I don't claim to know anything uh, <laughs> or everything. I, I, I claim that I have done the work to show that a lot of these things work for my particular use cases and for people who might have a similar use case. I, uh, when I work with devs in different companies, I show them things, and, and I'm willing to. Uh, I'm willing to put in the pain of, of doing a POC to show it works to help make their lives easier because I want. I want my devs to spend more time coding and innovating rather than thinking about kind of the environment all around it. Um, and sometimes I suggest stuff and it just it just doesn't work. Yeah. Uh, so I emphasize to anybody to really use what's best for your particular use cases and 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 be flexible in changing that. Yeah. I'm I'm definitely that that person who I I know many things, but I definitely am always learning and yeah, that's why I love doing the show is I, I get to ask all these questions <laughs> and I get to get clarifications of things. And, yeah, you know, and every person that uses this language is, has a unique perspective and, and unique skills and background and so forth. So it's, it's always been um, a great fun learning experience. Yeah. Yeah. No, the, the podcast definitely, uh, you've got, you, you bring on a lot of, uh, Really good people. I love listening to, to people, especially when they 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 help me find out stuff that I've just been doing wrong all along. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's like, oh yeah, I didn't know that. <laughs> so yeah, yeah. Well, Hugh, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been a lot of fun. Yeah, this is this was kind of cool, and it just sort of made me think about my past and my choices, and you know, makes me think about what well, you know, what's going to be the next step for me. Yeah, well, I, and uh, yeah, yeah. Well, I hope uh, I hope Python uh, remains part of that. Oh, it's not going anywhere. Trust <laughs> me, it's 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 not. Okay. Well, thanks again for coming on the show. All right, thank you. Remember, security within your software supply chain is crucial for your organization. Visit cloudsmith.com/sign up to build your private Python repository today. I want to thank Hugh Tipping for coming on the show this week. And I want to thank you for listening to the Real Python podcast. Make sure that you click that follow button in your podcast player. And if you see a subscribe button somewhere, remember that the Real Python podcast is free. If you like the show, please leave us a review. You can find show notes with links to all the topics we spoke about inside your podcast player or at realpython.com slash podcast. And while you're there, you can leave us a question or a topic idea. I've been your host, Christopher Bailey, and I look forward to talking to you soon.